You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Good morning. Good to see you all today. Glad that you're with us. Today, as you see, we're going to be talking about the one whom we can trust. I think you're probably already getting ahead of me and knowing who that is. Of course, it's, it's hard to uh, not have spoilers in a gospel sermon. You know how this is going to end. In a number of minutes, we're going to have an invitation where we try to apply the things in the scriptures, the news that we learn about Christ to our life and how he can help us overcome sin through the things that he did. Today, we want to look kind of conceptually and look back into the book of, of Genesis uh, and start from there. Start from the book of the beginning and notice how it is a, um, a, a great piece of literature, not that it isn't based on real and actual events and tells those events in an orderly way, but that the Bible is a great piece of literature in which we find uh, many uh, literary elements and not just find them, but find absolutely masterful use of them. And these things are obviously intentional. In studying about this and thinking about this the last couple of weeks, I uh, thought of a story that was told about William Faulkner. Uh, Faulkner was a, a gracious old Southern gentleman, and uh, when he was an elderly man, uh, he would go to the University of Mississippi, and he would give lectures uh, on, his, on his work, and he'd answer questions from the audience and one time, one of the students in the audience asked him about all the themes that were in his book and how, how he had woven those, uh, uh, these themes uh, through his literature. And he said, well, he said, if they tell you it's there, it probably is. He said, but I didn't intend it all. <laughs> and basically, very politely was telling the English professors, I think we all may be overreading it. But he was very polite about it. And he said, well, I, you know, he said, maybe those things are there as they are in life. But in the scriptures, it's an intentional, it's an author-specific way, these themes and, and motifs uh, that we find, uh, these things are intentional, and they are often repeated, and they are interwoven into the text. These, these images are there uh, repeatedly, and we, when we, we just go from the beginning, and, and here are some, like the theme of husbands and wives. You just tell me an important Bible story um, where husbands and wives isn't uh, a way that this story is told. And then, of course, we start in a garden. We go to vineyards. We have trees and vines all through the book from uh, beginning to end. Uh, whether people are clothed or not, or how they're clothed, uh, from the beginning to the end. Basically, if you, if you find it in Genesis and in Revelation you're going to find a lot of connecting points in between worship and sacrifices, work and rest. And the one we want to, I think today, most concentrate on is failure and its consequences. And so the Bible is this big, beautiful literary story. At the same time, it's also uh, a true telling of the facts that happened to real people that we believe by the scriptures that there was an original and real Adam and Eve 
there was a truly a Noah and his three sons. Uh, there was a real Abraham. There was a real Moses. There was a real uh, all these other things. And these things happened with them. But God was directing things in such a way and then had the story written for us of them uh, in such a way that is both true, uh, but also shows these best elements of any kind of written literature. And our written literature, when it's good, it copies the Bible. It wasn't that people said, hey, th- these are good ways to tell a story. Let's tell the story that way in the Bible. It's that the book of God told us these stories, and we recognize and go, oh, that's a good way to tell a story. Let's, let's use these things that we find in Scripture. Now, at other times and for other reasons, we will, re- we will look at our Scriptures and our Bibles, we'll look at them as a resource book. We will sometimes use the Bible as if it were an encyclopedia, and we'll also sometimes use it as if it were a dictionary. But I tell you, for all the great facts on every page of the dictionary, nobody ever read it and said, man, what a great story. Right? But if, and if we read the Bible like it is a dictionary, just looking at really small snippets uh, to see what it says, then we're going to miss sometimes by looking at iso- in isolation at a few set of words, we're going to miss sometimes these big themes. We're going to miss these big recurring uh, motifs uh, because we didn't dip into the text long enough uh, to see uh, that it was there. And so uh, a, a longer reading of Scripture, uh, a, a, a consecutive reading of Scripture gives us a much fuller and broader view. But at the same time, that's really a daunting task. This morning, Rick was teaching us about music. And what if Rick said, okay, everybody, we're going to read the whole New and Old Testaments uh, this week. And at the end, let's hear everybody's conclusion about music from beginning to end. Well, that that would be too daunting a task. We need to look at, at pieces. And so we have our topical Bibles or we have our word searches or we have our group of texts. Uh, that deal with a topic, because sometimes it's, you know, we need to get what it says about a topic quicker than we can get the whole. And so I think what we need to do is some of both. We need to use our divine resource book, our divine encyclopedia of, of all things pertaining to life and godliness, and use it in sometimes and in some ways as a technical manual. We also need to use it and learn it as the entirety, and as a book telling an overall story. But sometimes those stories get boring, you know, and we get to the construction details about the Ark of the Covenant. And whose eyes don't glaze over when we get to the 14th begat with 27 more begats to go. And so there are these things like that. And then there's other times, though, they're really great stories, but we go, oh, I know that. And we just jump to the lesson, we jump to the conclusion without all the time reading all of the parts. And so we can miss these greater things. And I think we sometimes miss the sense of wonder and and the sense of awe and the sense of longing that's behind the text uh, because for us, we already know the conclusion. Again, what was the title of today's sermon? the one in whom we can trust. Could every one of you right now tell me who that's going to be? Doug already knows, don't you? You know who the one's going to be. 
But we think about in the way that we get there. And so for imagine for a moment, you haven't read the whole book of Genesis. Imagine for a minute, it's new. Imagine you read this story of God's creation and God's people, and you find uh, this uh, man and woman set in perfection in a garden. And of course, by the time we, we come along, we can't even say the word garden without a sense of deep loss, right? And just a sadness. We even say the place where these people live because for us it's already such a symbol of tragic loss. But what we find is, is we find from the beginning, story after story, where this failure motif and the consequences of failure comes up. And so we start from the very first one, where we have Adam and Eve in a garden. And imagine you're reading the book of Genesis, and you read from the start that God made a man and a woman, and made them in a way that was very good, and made them and put them in a place that seemed to be perfection, gave them a few simple rules. Adam was specifically told, care for the garden. And that didn't seem to be too hard of a job, did it? And there was an awful lot there that, that was good, and it wasn't a burdensome job. And he had access to all this wonderful food. And then he has his lovely and perfect wife. And it isn't specifically said, but obviously the instruction there would have been, you know, care for her. And her job would have been care for him. And you think, well, that wouldn't have been too hard a thing to do either, would it? But then, of course, sin came. There was in that perfection, but one prohibition. Just one. And what did Satan come and tempt them on? Satan deceiving Eve, then he takes and he eats, and so we find failure. Genesis 3 verse 6, she took the fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband, with her he ate. And then, in one of the most tragic statements of Scripture, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings for their loins. So now we, we've got the loss of innocence, the loss of fellowship with God. Quickly we see the loss of camaraderie with each other. Because who does Adam quickly blame? And then her, having no one else to blame, blames the serpent. Because there's no other humans around. I'm sure she would have blamed them too. But the loss of camaraderie, the shame the nakedness, the hiding from God, and then the curse. And so there's this great curse that comes upon her and her relationship uh, with her husband and the, uh, the difficulty that will come in all things relating uh, to bearing a children. And it says, though, there will be enmity. This is Genesis 3.14. There's going to be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. So here from the beginning is also this theme of hope. That there's going to be one who will crush the serpent. Who will literally bash his head in. Right? We, we get that even, even in the New Testament, Romans 16 and 20. Satan will soon be crushed under our feet as we participate in the victory through Jesus Christ. And so we've got a hope to come. And this serpent who's messed everything up, 
something's going to come to him. But we see here in the sin, we see, we'll see this over and over, and this is one of the, these, these themes, this constant. We see how Adam's sin affects his wife, and we see how it affects his kids. And that's one of the things that we'll see in all these stories, is we see the effects of sin on the wife and children, the effects of sin on our family and on our progeny. And it's sort of like that, the old joke about, you know, the New York Times, uh, you know, economy, economy goes into slump, women and minorities hardest hit. No matter what happens, women and minorities hardest hit. Well, when it comes to sin, women and children hardest hit over and over. And so what do we find out about this man and woman who were joined together in a beautiful and perfect garden? What happens with them? Out of the garden they go. And so they're, they're, they're expelled from the garden. And then the next thing that happens in Genesis 4, the man had relation with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Now, don't immediately go, Cain. Don't do that yet because pretend we don't know that yet about Cain. What we have here, though, is what she says. Well, if we only had this so far, I've gotten a man-child with the help of Jehovah. That's Genesis 4.1. Imagine we're reading through the book of Genesis. Okay, we've, got this ter- we've had this terrible problem, this collapse, this, 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 this sin and consequence. But now, here's a man-child. Here is a son from God. Maybe he'll solve it. All right, let's read about Cain. Oh, and then we read about Cain. What did I say about the sin affecting so often the wives and the children the worst? What kind of rivalry did they have there at that house? Was the enmity between Cain and Abel, was that new and fresh and only the day that one worshipped acceptably and one did not? Or we might imagine there was a long time before that. And Adam was cursed in his work, and here's one of his boys who, who works in the field, and here's one of his boys who's worked with the flock, and he's a good, he's a dad who's, hey, I'm just happy both of my sons have a job. Oh, till one bashes the other with a rock, or however he killed him. Could have been a stick, could have been a rock, could have been whatever. And so Cain kills Abel. We think this, this is not getting better. All right, that's not, that's not the one. That's not the one. That's another failure. Okay. And then we keep reading and things get worse and worse. And we get over to Genesis 6. And we found it's just a whole world of evil. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. All right, Noah. Hey, and you know what? Not only is Noah a righteous man, a man who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, Beyond that, when Noah was born, back in Genesis 5.29, there was a prophecy by his father Lamech. And, and this is an interesting prophecy. It says, this is the one, this Noah, this Noah will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands. That exactly is an echo of the curse placed on Adam and his work. This is the one, this Noah, he will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so here's Noah. He's going to ease the curse for us. And we think about the difference between the old world and the new world, before the flood and after the flood. 
And then sometimes we think about what a beautiful and marvelous world that must have been that was so much closer to the garden. And how long did men live back then? 950 years, right? Uh, some of them more, some of them less, but a lot of 950-year-old fellows walking around. And we think, man, what, what kind of life would that have been? Well, you could live for nearly a millennia. How much gentler the world must have been to be conducive to that kind of life. But Lamech, who lived in it, said, man, we're getting beat to death by all the work. Noah's going to give us rest, and Noah's going to help us with the curse. And we think, all right, this is the man. And then God spares him, and I think most likely on the family plan is boys, but Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth get on the ark. Them and their wives, and they among all humanity are saved. And we think, this is going to be great. We're going to start over with these righteous people. And so we had Adam, the father of us all. And because of this incident, Noah, the last father of us all. We're all related to Noah, right? My sister's here today, but every one of y'all's cousins, right? We're all related in Adam, in Adam and Noah both. But how does that story end? Genesis 9, after the flood. Some years have passed. A grandson is old enough to be involved in the story as well. Hey, Noah's grandson shows up. That's going to be a good thing, isn't it? Genesis 9, 19. These are the three sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming. Hey, I built yourself a garden. Then he planted a vineyard. All right. We got vines growing. Each, each man's going to get to sit under his own arbor. Hold on. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Hold on. Naked man in his garden, vineyard, tent. I know this story. It doesn't end well. Doesn't end well here either. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders, and they walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away, so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. I don't know what all that means, he knew what his son did, but there seems to be a lot there. There seems to be something pretty bad happened there. And he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he will be to his brothers. You know, God put the curse on Adam and Eve and sent them out of the garden. And here, this man, he ends up having to curse his own son and grandson. And we think, this is getting not better, but this is getting worse. Well, the story goes on, and we have Tower of Babel, and everybody rebels together again. And then people are scattered about the world. And then God calls. Then God calls one man who's especially faithful to him. And in Genesis 12, Abraham, Abram as he was then known, Abram, the man of whom it would later say he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, which the Apostle Paul will quote is how we're saved. Romans 4 and verse 5. Well, here is the man of faith, the man of God. 
Genesis 12 starts with him leaving his land, following God under great promises to get the land, to get a great number of descendants, and in him all the nations of the earth be blessed. But by the end of the chapter, in chapter 12, he's down in Egypt. And when he's down in Egypt, he's down there with Sarah, Sarai still, his beautiful wife. And as they go down to Pharaoh, he says to her, Genesis 12, 11, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But they'll let you live. And the next verses tell about how they go to Egypt, and she was noticed for her beauty, and Pharaoh took her to the harem that he had, put her with his other wives, and a great curse fell upon him. And it was revealed to him that he had done wrong in taking Abram's wife. And in verse 17 it says, The Lord has struck his house with a great plague. And then verse 18, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is it you've done? If we had taken time to read more of the Genesis 3 account, would we have heard those words before? What have you done? What did God ask Abram? What did God ask Adam? What have you done? What does Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh ask the man of faith? What have you done? And what did I say? Who, who takes it the worst so many times when there's unfaithfulness? Isn't the, the women and the children? And so, Pharaoh sends her out and says, why did you not tell me? Why didn't you do, why'd you do this? And then, a number of years later, Genesis 20, in the land of the Philistines, with King Abimelech, Abraham does the same thing again. And this time, it's another pagan king who, with the same words as God in heaven says to Abraham, what have you done to us? What have you done? And how I have sinned against you, and you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. Because he passed off. Her is his sister again. You've done to me things which ought not be done. Isn't that a common theme in scripture? You have done things that ought not to be done. And honestly, isn't that the most terrible thing our conscience ever says to us? What are you doing, Jay? What have you done to us? What have you done to me? You've done what ought not be done. But Abraham says, well, because I thought there's no fear of God in this place, they'll kill me because of my wife. We have excuses. Well, then a little later, we find out as they're waiting for this child that God has promised the man of faith, the promised child of, uh, to come. And just imagine if, if Sarah had gone uh, with Pharaoh or the king, what that would have done to the lineage of Abraham. If that had been a fully realized relationship. But Sarah says, you know, this has taken a long time. Why don't we just have a child through a surrogate? Have my maid Hagar. And there's a son produced. But what does that result in? In Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul will use the word persecute. That Ishmael, the son of Abraham 
will persecute Isaac, the child of promise. And that's a uh, you know, foreshadowing of things to come, the Apostle Paul would say. But the child of promise ended up persecuted in his own house because his mother had told his dad to have a child by another woman. And he did. And we think, well, you know, Adam did what? He listened to his wife Eve and he ate the fruit. Abraham listened to his wife Sarah and produces for the world forever. Ishmael and his descendants. In these sinful things, who ends up always getting it the worse? Well, Isaac came along. You know, we don't remember a lot about Isaac himself. We think about Isaac and his relationship to his dad. Isaac and Abraham, he's offered as a sacrifice because of Abraham's great faith. And he was waited on for so long by faith, by Abraham. And then we think about him with his own sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. And again, you know, Cain and Abel all over again, isn't it? Except one of them flees before the other kills him. But there's one story with Isaac. In Genesis 26, Isaac's in Gerar. And it says, the men of that place ask about his wife. And he says, why are you laughing, Doc? Like, you know what he's going to say. She's my sister. You know, Abraham at least was half right. (laughs) They're not really sisters. They were cousins, but... And listen to this. When the men of this place said, they asked about his wife, and he said, she's my sister... For he was afraid to say she's my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. Well, as the story goes, of course, she's taken to the king's house. The king will later see her and uh, Isaac together, acting as if they are not brother and sister. And he will recognize what's going on. And he calls and says, Behold, certainly she's your wife. How then did you say? What are you doing? Same question. These pagan kings have to keep asking God's people, what are you doing? How is it that you say she's my sister? And he said, because I said, I might die on account of her. Now, remember that phrase for a moment. I might die on account of her. And Abimelech says, what have you done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. These pagan kings have to keep being the voice of morality because God's people sometimes forget it. And so, in time, the promised child has his boys, Jacob and Esau, and again, just... To say the names just conjures up every imagery of rivalry and strife and lack of harmony at the house. Jacob flees. He ends up going back to, uh, the, you know, now by now a little bit farther distant relatives, but still the relatives. And he ends up with strife there. He ends up with two wives when he wanted one. And because of their rivalry, he ends up with children by four women. When, how many do you think he ever wanted children from? And how do he act like he wanted children from? 
And that leads to his son's rivalry. And Joseph in Egypt. And on it goes. And so let's fast forward a little bit. We're going to fast forward to that time of Egypt as the people grow to a great people. Eventually under the leadership of Moses. And we can think of his successes and failures as well. They're led to their own land. And then after time, judges, they get a king. And we're not even going to talk about the first one. God seems to be teaching them a lesson about what a king would do if they had one with Saul. But no, our second one. We get now our our faithful king. Our king who's a man after God's own heart. The specially anointed king and prophet and worship leader. The righteous king of Israel. David. A godly king secure in his own castle. So think of all these strangers in a strange land and the problem they had because they had to sojourn down to Egypt or they had to, you know, live among the Philistines and there were conflict over wells and they didn't really have their own land. But but now, but now, we've got a godly king in a land under the law of God. And he has a secure land for all his people. So secure that he doesn't have to go out fighting anymore with the armies. The godly king secure in his own castle. And what do we know is going to happen? 2 Samuel 11. Bathsheba. And it's so tragic. It's such a horrible story. That here were the patriarchs worried that some king would take their wife and kill them to get her. And who's the guy that actually does that? David does it to one of his loyalist of men. He takes his wife while he's out fighting for David. He stays loyal to David and it foils David's attempts to cover up the crime. And then David has him murdered. And we think, wow. If we go through and we see all these people, we got this hope out there that there's going to be somebody who can deal with the devil, who can crush the devil's head, who can free the world from this kind of thing, free his people from all this. And you go through the patriarchs. And you go through the kings. And does anybody ever even come close? And as I said, it hits the women and the children hardest. What befalls David's house and his children's lives because of the sin that he did? Most of his children don't even make it to full maturity and full adulthood. And his son... His son Absalom rebels and takes some of his concubines in a public manner. And so we keep going through and we keep hoping, who's going to deal with this? Who's going to be the one? Who's going to help us? And then as the New Testament begins, in the Gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ, do we not finally find, as we've been reading for so long, We've been reading of a hope to come. We've been reading of improvement. We've been reading of a better day. And finally it comes. And we find him who's going to be the promised seed of that very first woman. 
who's going to be the savior of mankind, who really does give us all rest. The one who fulfills the promise to Abraham to bless all the world. We're finally going to get a son and a husband and a truly godly king who doesn't disappoint. And when Jesus was at the woman with the well in John 4 in Samaria, and he tells her, if you drink from the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. She says, hey guy, we're at Jacob's well. Are you greater than Jacob? Yeah. And I said a while ago, with some of the words of Isaac, I said, remember these words. Isaac said, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she's beautiful. And then again he says, because I said to myself, I might die on account of her. And then we come to the life and work of Jesus, and what does he actually do? He dies on account of his bride. He doesn't send his bride out to be defiled. He brings his bride in so that he might purify her. He saves those that are with him. He doesn't throw them to the wolves to save himself. He doesn't act selfishly at any time. We think about Jesus the night they came to arrest him. In the garden, they said, who do you seek? He said, who do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I told you I'm he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the words which were spoken, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And so here's Jesus, the dependable. Here's Jesus, the protector. Here's Jesus, the writer of all these wrongs and the hope of all of these promises. God had blessed these patriarchs with these noticeably beautiful women. And we see how so often they failed them. And you think, well, what kind of beautiful woman is he going to give his own son? And he gives her instead a woman that needs to be cleaned up. A woman that needs to be purified. A woman who needs to be properly clothed. He gives his son as a bride the sinful of humanity. That he might make them clean and present them ultimately and eventually as the wife that is worthy. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her. So he might sanctify her. She didn't start sanctified, clean and beautiful. No, no. He sanctified her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But she should be holy and blameless. Read the Old Testament story of Hosea to find out how this process is done and with what he was working with. So husbands, you also ought to love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because remembers of his body. And so we find the hope of all the ages, the fulfillment of all the promises. We find the one who's finally dependable, the one who's finally and truly faithful, the one who is a true friend and a good Lord to us all. The one who doesn't set his children fighting in rivalry because of passing down the consequences of the errors that he did. The one who doesn't get in conflict with the neighbors because he has wronged them. The one who suffers wrong, even while doing right. To the result, and this is the words which we use as the text for the title, that we would learn not to trust in ourselves, but in God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talked about a terrible, terrible situation he was in that God delivered him from. And he said, this is the lesson from which we learn from it. For we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, for 2 Corinthians 1.8, of our affliction which came upon us in Asia. Well, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. So we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we've set our hope, he will yet deliver us. In the life of Jesus, in his provision for the apostles, like Paul, and for the church, and we read about through the rest of the New Testament and the book of God, we find this to be true, and that we can depend on this. And from the old and new together, we learn again this, as Paul learned in his peril, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises even the dead. He on whom we have set our hope, he has delivered us, and will yet deliver us. You read the whole book of God, the best and most faithful of human beings we can find. And on which one of those, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, of which even of those would you say, I'll stand with him and I'll let him be my guide. I'll let him be the one in whom I completely confide and completely trust. Even of the best, you wouldn't. And what would, you, what would they say if you tried? they say, no, not me. They would say, as we should all say, and encourage each other and encourage our children and encourage those around us to depend upon God and his son, our husband, the savior of the body, our friend, and our trustworthy Lord. Jesus Christ. With that, we close our study today. There are so many other rich things we can get from these themes. So much to say more about uh, the trees from the Garden of Eden to the tree of life in the city of God, the clothing being naked in this world but being clothed with the righteous acts of the saints in the reward of heaven, worship from Abel on, the rest that is promised, 
The rest they got in part in the Sabbath in the land, but fully in heaven where there'll be no sun beating down and there'll be no tear in their eye and there'll be no heat, there'll be, there'll be no, no strife, no labor, no, none of these first things. But, but this one, failure and consequence and trust we'll leave with today. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.